Hello, and welcome back to Comics Overtime, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to, to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? Excellent. Excellent indeed. It's going to be a nice week. Take a little bit of a break from the disaster that was two weeks ago when Thanos <laughs> half ended the universe. And in a snap, spend a little no bit less. of time. Yes. Single snap caused a lot of trouble. We're going to hang out this week and we're going to spend a little time with the Pims and the Langs in 2018's Ant-Man sequel entitled Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yes, a decidedly different tone of movie than the uh, than the movie we just came from here a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but we will get into a lot more detail on that here in just a minute. First, let's talk about some comic book news. And Dan, there was an interesting article on comicbook.com that I wanted to let the, our listeners know about. And it is 10 Marvel Comics That Influenced the MCU. So comicbook.com has compiled a list of 10 comic book runs that heavily inspired the MCU as we know it. Uh, the list is not exactly the most exhaustive of lists. There's lots of comics they, they talk about. There could be one-off issues or there could be a long series of run, uh, a series of books. But they picked 10. And the list includes my Iron Man Extremis, Jason Aaron's Thor, the Infinity Gauntlet Saga, that should be a uh, very recent memory because we read that just two weeks ago. Uh, but And there's seven more, but they they said that's definitely not the exhaustive list because uh, things like Planet Hulk or Reginald Hudlin's run of Black Panther definitely could be on this list as well, even though they are not. Um I thought it was I thought it was good because you know we're not going to get to everything that is on this list necessarily as we go through and look at it since we're already into phase three, but here if you're looking for something and you want want it to feel familiar because you're an MCU fan here's some uh, some runs of books that that might catch your fancy if you haven't read some of them. Well, and of the ten, I mean we read Extremis. We did read some of the Guardians of the Galaxy books they talked about. We did read Avengers number one. I think I did have you read, actually. I think uh, so, we too. We read the Winter Soldier books, Brubaker's Captain America stuff. You've read some Jason Aaron Thor yes. uh, while we were talking about them. We've read the Infinity Gauntlet, or at least Infinity, yeah, Infinity Gauntlet. We've read Secret Invasion, and we've read Civil War. So of the ten there, the only two we haven't read are actually Tom King's Vision, which is fantastic and definitely is something that we would have read during or we would read during a WandaVision look, but that's far into the future in a different thing. And then The Irredeemable Ant-Man, which I did not think about having us read, but it would have it would have been an option. This is actually Eric O'Grady, though, which is a completely different character even though he does have a lot of similarities to Lang, uh, yeah, didn't didn't have you read those. But other than that, we've actually covered quite a few of these. I think okay, they, we, they had a pretty we, decent list. 
we covered more of them than I thought we had then. So I, I feel, uh, feel bad suggesting that we hadn't gotten to a lot of these because obviously we've done like 80% of them. So, or at least in some capacity. So, but that is the list there. There'll be a link in the show notes. If you want to check it out and get the more specifics on why they picked those books and then uh, you can jump into, say, Marvel Unlimited and 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 see 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 those runs. Speaking of Marvel Unlimited, there is a new set of books this week. It's a rather, a rather small list, but there are three number two books that are becoming available that this week that look kind of interesting. Uh, Silk number two, Daredevil, and Echo number two, and Storm number two. So uh, these are very early on in the in the, in their current runs so you can uh, actually dive in and and jump in almost from the beginning only only two, two issues in if none of those sound interesting to you some other characters with titles that are releasing this week include adam warlock silver surfer deadpool ghost rider she hulk captain america and thor so lots of options there for you Dan, do you have a recommendation for us? Before the recommendation, one other piece of news that we don't know is news because it hasn't actually been confirmed, I don't believe. But it sounds like the Echo Disney Plus series may have slipped down the schedule again all the way out of 2023 and into 2024. Oh, I had not and heard that. Okay. Some people talk about that being a matter of, you know, being troubled, but... I think also it might be that some of these streaming companies are running out of content because of their attempts to break the reasonable requests for you know a living wage from some of the people who work for them. And so now to try and continue to have content into 2024 until they get the writers and, and uh, actors back working, they may just be moving some of these back and spacing them out. But it does sound like there's a good chance Echo is going to be farther away than we thought it was unfortunate well the writers some of the writers have the the writer's strike is over but we still have an actor's strike and now there's yep. sounds like there's a voice actor's strike that could be coming with regards to video games and, and some different things as well so yeah i there's definitely i think some issues here and the as far we don't know the exact production schedule of echo as well and so there could be just incomplete episodes filmed right now at this point because of when the writer's strike happened and and how far out they were from from the uh, the release date. So yeah. that's that's yeah, that's interesting. I had not heard that. Well, it was originally intended to be out in summer of 2023. So it's going to be nearing nine months plus that it's going to be delayed by the time they're done minimum. So anyway, for now, you can go and read an Echo comic, I guess, if you want to get your, your fill of uh, Echo and Daredevil. So, yes. But nonetheless, um, yeah, I do have a recommendation, though. And this is something I'm only about, like, a, you know, under halfway through this book. But I'm a huge John Scalzi fan. And just this week, uh, a new book came out from him called Starter Villain. That if for some reason you're looking for something that's sort of got a little bit of a, a science fiction-y bent, but also is just good fun, highly recommend that. I'm listening to it 
off of Audible. If you get the audiobook, John Scalzi and Will Wheaton have become very much of a team with a lot of their stuff. Scalzi writes in that sort of smart-ass kind of dialogue style that mm-hmm. Will Wheaton just sort of naturally matches with. So yeah. it's a brilliant listen. Wheaton's in, in great form. And it's the story, not to give too much away, of a guy who somehow gets caught up with supervillains and, like, super intelligent cats. And okay. if you just take a look at the cover of the audiobook, it is so ridiculously adorable, especially if you happen to be a cat person, that you will be unable to not read it. So, there you go. All right, that sounds interesting. Starter villain, John Scalzi. All right, well, there'll be a link in the show notes for you to check that out. And with that, that is going to do it for our news segment. Let's jump in and let's talk about our movie. But before we do that, we typically do a spoiler warning. This is your spoiler warning. We're going to be talking in great detail about Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yes, it is a few years old, so it probably passed the statute of limitations on a spoiler warning. But if you do not want the movie spoiled, you haven't seen it in a while, go check it out, come back, and hear us talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp. All right, your film facts for Ant-Man and the Wasp. The tagline of the film, real heroes, not actual size. The release date was July 4th, 2018. That was in the U.S. It had a staggered release date that went into late August for China. So it was a rather extended time frame for as far as the release date. Runtime for the film, 118 minutes. It box office take worldwide, just over $622.5 million. Domestically, it grossed just under $217 million. All of this on a budget of an estimated budget of $162 million. There was a report saying that it could have been as low as $130 million and as high as $195 million. So 162 is the estimate we're going to go with. IMDb's rating for this film, 7.0 out of 10. The movie stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Michael Pena, Walter Groggins, Tip T.I. Harris, David Desmulchen, Hannah John Carmen, Abby Ryder Forson, Lawrence Fishburne, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Michael Douglas. The movie is directed by Peyton Reed. This is his second Ant-Man movie that he's directed. And the screenplay is by five people. Chris McKenna, Eric Summers, Paul Rudd, Andrew Bearer, and Gabriel Ferrari. Those are your film facts for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Dan, recapping this film, this is... For a movie under two hours, there is a lot that happens in this film. Yeah, I think part of the quote-unquote problem is that this in many ways more resembles like a complex drama than your average MCU action movie. Normally we can depend on the fact that the last half hour to 45 minutes is just a bunch of people in spandex running around like hitting each other. And that is very simple to summarize, right? Uh Uh-huh. But this actually is far more about interactions and people kind of going places and doing things and talking to each other. 
So it's a lot longer. So we'll probably kind of visit a little bit as we go along here. I have more summary than I really wanted. So let's get going, shall we? Yes, let's do this. All right, so we start in with a flashback to the day Janet Pym disappeared into the quantum realm while stopping a nuclear missile attack. Hank Pym is actually telling his daughter Hope the story of how his of how her mom sort of died as a hero and told her that when Scott Lang had gone down to the quantum realm and returned, which happened in the first movie, it had given Pym the hope that perhaps Janet could still be alive. Ever since, he'd been working on this machine called the Quantum Tunnel with the hopes that he can use it to bring her back. We then see Scott and Cassie playing while he is on house arrest. We witness a discussion on landing a fish with him and Luis and we see a visit from Jimmy Woo and the FBI after Scott trips a vicinity alarm in an ant slide accident. Later, Scott is relaxing in the tub and ends up having a vision of the quantum realm as well as a game of hide and seek with a young girl in a wardrobe. He contacts Hank and Hope, who then kidnap him and take him back to their lab in a tiny, tiny car while a human-sized ant takes his place, leg monitor and all. So here's our setup. Yes. We get really most of our major characters shown at least in some sort of a, you know, a way. Uh, we see that Michael uh, Pena, his Luis is still there, kind of hanging out as a, a man Friday to, to help him with the, the, you know, gadgets in the, the ant farm and whatever. Scott is in house arrest with his daughter, so he's trying to keep from going crazy. And the Pims are busy doing science. So he's under house arrest because of what he did in Germany, working with Cap, trying to, uh, with the whole Civil War thing. And, you know, Cap is, uh, you know, off and, and kind of wanted, along with um, Black Widow and Falcon mm -hmm. and some of those those people that were on that side and and, and this is this is like in Infinity War. There was a there was a mention of the fact that Ant Man was under house arrest. So yep. th this is literally kind of coinciding, we think, with the events that are going on in Infinity War. They definitely have happened pre Infinity War, or at least it seems like it. Well, and he's on he's on house arrest for two years it sounds like and so he's just getting towards the end of that where he's just got a few days left and the like yes so it's yes. been a while he's yes. since he got caught so at this point and and also like to note that hope makes it very very clear to us all and to scott early on what she thinks of his decision to steal the suit go off and help Captain America get caught and then essentially because of the fact they use Scott used his suit, used um, Hank's suit, the Pims are also outlaws looked yes. for for the government as essentially accessories to whatever crimes it is that Scott did. But the Pims have actually managed at this point to open a tunnel to the quantum realm for just a little bit, which allowed Janet to come through and send that message to Scott about the wardrobe. Somehow they've become entangled when he'd been down there earlier, and so she's able to send this memory that's going to allow Hope to know that it was her mom and that she's still down there. To make things interesting, they of course still need exactly one more part to stabilize the big machine and get it ready to go, 
which they head off to get from a slimy criminal named Sonny Birch. The purchase of this part goes badly, as these things do, with Hope and Scott ending up in a tussle with Birch's crew and the superpowered third party also joining in the fight. We see that the Wasp suit has significant upgrades, including wings and stingers, but after, a, after the battle, they end up eventually losing because the bad guy, this sort of superpowered creature that's now going to be named a ghost later on, we don't see a face or anything, just a suit and some phasing powers, they actually find Hank and then steal the lab and get away with it. So, not a great, not a great beginning for our heroes. No. They then head off to the offices of XCon, where they have a visit with Luis and decide that an old friend of Hank's called Bill Foster may be the one who's able to help them find a way to retreat or to track down the lab. Foster and Scott talk about uh, his time as Goliath, and then Foster tells them there may be a way if they can, quote, modify the diffraction units on one of the regulators. Scott's old suit, which he said he'd destroyed, actually has this needed component. And they then end up taking a side trip to Cassie's school to find it because she's taken the little trophy cup that he'd been storing it in to keep it safe to school the, with her. The, the world's Scott ends greatest, up as a tiny little guy. and yeah, The world's yes. greatest grandma trophy, is, which is, you know, a, a running joke that I, that I think was rather amusing. Excellent. So once they get the suit, they actually find the suspicious house where they think they need to go. They fly into it to steal back their tech, but are quickly knocked out by Ghost uh, and captured. She then introduces herself as Ava when the three of them wake up, and monologues that she's actually the daughter of Elias Starr, who'd been a co-worker of Hank Pym back in the day. After Pym fired him, he continued his research and accidentally destroyed his lab. During that explosion, Starr and his wife are killed, both of Ava's parents, and she actually is afflicted with something they're calling molecular disequilibrium. Bill Foster actually then found her and tried to help her control her condition, but he was evidently working with S.H.I.E.L.D. or S.H.I.E.L.D. found her as well. They weaponized her and turned her into sort of an assassin, kind of like we see with the Black Widows in the Red Room in Russia. Not a great look for our government here, by the way, but nonetheless, that's, that's where that's at. Our heroes get away with the help of the ants uh, that were stored in a little Altoids container and end up setting up the lab out in the woods. Unfortunately, Luis knows where they're at and he's captured by Birch's goons who end up giving him a truth syrup after which he starts talking and after a lot of talking does give up their location. Uh, that happens just as the crew gets the quantum tunnel working with the help of Janet channeling through Scott. Scott then ends up returning home to his uh, bathroom so that he can keep the FBI from knowing he's been gone. Well, Janet and Hank end up getting arrested after the entire lab is encircled by FBI. After a quick jailbreak, they then head back to the lab, which has been stolen by the FBI and then quickly restolen by Ghost. Hank manages to drive Ghost and Bill Foster away and dives into the quantum realm in his quantum buggy, while Scott, Hope, Luis and the ants lead Birch and the feds in a car chase. Luis gets to play with Hot Wheels. Scott's old suit malfunctions, and a super tall Scott eventually gets the lab back from Birch before collapsing. Meanwhile, Hank has found Janet, and they eventually return after the lab is put in the correct place and expanded to full size by Ghost. 
likely at excessive loss of life and property. Maybe I'll put that in. So there we go. There we go. All right. So that's that's that. a lot. That that is that is an actual just a lot of yeah. It's a lot of human interaction. There's a lot of characters talking to each other and sort of plots that weave between each other. I think in a lot of ways, this is a more complex movie than it first seems. There's a lot of jokes, but it's jokey in the way of almost a an old situation comedy or, or something like that, rather than, than something that's... It's not simple just because it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got some thoughts on that here in just a minute, but let's start with... This isn't Ant-Man 2. This is Ant-Man and the Wasp. And the, and the reason I say that, and the director says that in the commentary about this film, because this is the Wasp's story in, in my mind. This is Hope Van Dyne becoming the Wasp and being absolutely remarkable, basically, this entire film. This, this shows what she would have been capable of doing if she'd have been the one wearing the suit all along, right? Because she was the one mm -hmm. that wanted to wear the suit all along. In the first Ant-Man film, she was the one that wanted to be in the suit, and it was Hank that wouldn't let her. And, and we see how formidable a person she is with the suit, and Scott Lang is just trying to keep up. He is... He's not a superhero. He is just a guy, a, an everyman guy who's fairly intelligent, but is not, is, is using a suit and is not like, like hope at all. And the, you mentioned the restaurant scene, the coming out scene, they called it, is remarkably done when, when she fights uh, Sonny Birch's character, character goons, and all this to try and get the uh, th that last piece of tech that they need for the quantum tunnel, and then the fight with her and Scott Lang against this mm -hmm. ghost character. It was it was masterfully well done. It's weird because during the first one, we were told essentially by Hope that Hank was making a, a mistake by not letting her be the one to do all this stuff. Right. And we knew he was afraid because his wife has died and he didn't want to put his daughter in a suit and then have her disappear as well. And he's like, here's this schmo, and if he happens to go to the quantum realm, I'm not really that broken up about it. Let's let's see what he can do with the suit, right? Uh-huh. But, yeah, I think in this one we really get to see just what a bad decision he made because a lot of the problems that happened during Ant-Man would not have happened if you'd had someone who, you know, kind of like Hope says, she's trained all her life for this, she would not have, she would not have screwed up as many things as he did. The wasp suit too, very, very intricate. They're enhanced, obviously. There, we saw a version of the suit at in the post-credit scene of Ant-Man One. There's been some improvements made to it because that one was an older version that. Hank and, and Janet were working on. We've got stingers, we've got, you know, wings, all this sort of thing. And and yeah, she knows how to use all of them very, very well. And I we talked last week about Janet Van Dyne in the current Wasp run of comics and how just like confident and just matter of fact, I'm a superhero, I know how to do this, 
I'm going to get the job done. And that is every bit how Hope Van Dyne, Evangeline Lilly feels in this film. I mean, it's interesting because they are different characters. And in fact, Hope Van Dyne does not exist in the comics. So this is a character created entirely from whole cloth for Ant-Man and the Wasp, right? The Wasp that we know is actually the one who's stuck in the quantum realm that we're still trying to, to grab back. But yeah, I think that what you find is that really... The, the two wasps are very different in the comics, almost to the point where you would think they are different people, and they've just made them different people in the MCU. So you have essentially an older wasp, an older generation of wasp, who is married to Hank Pym, and is of one era, and then you have the new Hope wasp, who is kind of closer to the Janet Pym that we see in the comics these days. Yeah. All right, so you you talked about the the movie feeling a, a little bit different, and I was reading about uh, kind of the inspiration for the f- film, and Peyton Reed talked about like the first Ant Man film being a heist film, heist film. So we had Scott Lang mm-hmm. trying to steal a suit. He said that he was inspired by After Hours from 1985, Midnight Run. And what's up, Doc? In that this was, our characters were on the clock. They're they're basically from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie is is basically two days worth of of things that have happened. And it is amazing to me that they were that they did a really good job because it felt like there was a lot going on. So obviously there's two two days worth of time that they're filling in, but it but it happens really quick. And he described this as being a part action film, part romantic comedy, and wanted this to be a little more like Elmore Leonard vibe, where we have villains, but we also have antagonists, and we have these roadblocks to our heroes getting where they need to be and getting what they need for this mission. And, you know, this, it, it's interesting because they all start out apart. You know, we have Scott under house arrest, we have Hope and hank that are kind of on the run and like moving around and and doing doing their thing in the in the miniature lab and because of scott lang's decision to help captain american civil war and they they very quickly figure out a way to bring them all together bring them back together and get this movie kind of just kind of rolling like a freight train towards you know the ultimate kind of third act big crazy thing that that always seems to happen in an mcu film yeah i think that talking about like after hours and that's very interesting when when you were talking about this one of the things that occurred to me is that i almost think of it in terms of you know when you mention elmore leonard especially the get shorty and some of these other elmore leonard books and films they're so dialogue driven and they're so character-driven. There's yes. something that happens, but really whether the character actually accomplishes what they're set out to do is incidental. And half right. the time by the end, they've screwed things up so badly that they can never accomplish the thing they actually wanted to. They're on to like their second or third bad decision and right. trying to salvage something, right? And that's kind of the thing here is that 
it's really more about just watching the characters on their journey and that you care about and are interested by them. Yeah. You know, Luis's dialogue, if we really cared about what was happening, would drive you nuts because he's sitting <laughs> there talking about Morrissey, yeah. Morrissey jukeboxes and you're like, no, I just got to know what's going to happen. But I don't think most of us care what happens. You know, the, the destination is not the, unlike most MCU films, the destination is not really the key here. They're on a time crunch that they sort of throw in with one line from Janet where, you know, if, if we miss this, there won't be another alignment for 100 years or something. But I don't think anybody noticed or cared about that. It was all just sort of, ah, they're going to do this thing and it's moving along. The movie that it most reminds me of in some ways is Pulp Fiction, believe it or not. Oh, which has a very okay. different a very different vibe. But it's a bunch of people wandering around sort of in a similar story that's intersecting and the like. And, you know, what what, what are they trying to do in Pulp Fiction? That's a great question because I I've watched so it like long, fifteen yeah. or twenty times, and I know there's a point. You know, you've got the MacGuffin in the in the suitcase and everything. Right. But by the end, nobody really cares because you're just there for the characters, right? And I think that's kind of the way Ant Man and the Wasp is. They've they've managed to make sort of interestingly enough and kooky enough characters and relationships that you're just sort of there for it, and this is so different from most MCU movies that have that sort of propellant plot. And you really are, you're invested in the car chase because you know what they're chasing after. I know that somehow they had to get the lab to some place in order for the buggy to come back, but I didn't really know what they were chasing, like what the point of the car chase was particularly. Yeah, it was you just know to why get they up. had to get it's, it to where it, they did. They they didn't have to get it where they did. They just had to get it back, and so just had because to get it big. they just had to get it so that they could make it big again. They didn't matter where. They just needed it big, and that's why it ends up on the uh, on on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, big at the end of the film because basically Ghost finds it and is like, "All right, this is as good a spot as any. Let's let's do this." Let's, I want to go in there now and, and I'm going to get the, I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm going to do the thing that allows for me to, to, to get better. Uh, even if it means killing Janet before they get her back. So technically our heroes actually completely failed then really, because it was ghost that ended up doing the thing that needed to be done for them to come back. Yes, because Luis had the, the, the remote to, to make it big again and so she steals she steals that and then makes it big and then goes in there just so just in time as the time ran out after hank and and janet find each other in the quantum realm and are trying to make their way back yeah so there you go but but it's weird that that's my my sort of synonym to this but it does remind me of pulp fiction Far less I, I profane could, and, yes. and and violent, but n nonetheless, I like so. these characters a lot more than I like the characters in Pulp Fiction too. It's there, just, there is that. Yes. 
I wanted to talk about photorealism because director Peyton Reed's biggest mandate as far as visual effects for this was photo. He said he photorealism. And, and I thought that was interesting. There was a lot of VFX houses that worked on this 13 to be exact. A lot of them that we've heard from other MCU films, DNEG, Scanlon, Method Studios, Luma, Industrial Light and Magic among them. DNEG was kind of interesting because they did a lot of the, uh, they called them macro photography shot sequences. And it was interesting because they had different cameras and things like this that they needed to do lenses to try and create the effect of things being bigger or smaller than they typically are. And, and what was really interesting is they actually worked with a company called uh, Clear Angle that did a survey and photography of San Francisco and specifically for Lombard Street so that they could do small car, big cars going through Lombard Street in San Francisco. And they basically recreated Lombard Street in VFX so that they could do some of the things that end up being done in that shot. It is, it is really interesting. And the, the other thing is that the DNEG also, and I hadn't even considered this, Dan. When you do a VFX shots, you have to actually kind of match the screen that you're going to be doing the VFX shots for. Because obviously, you know, if there's backgrounds and things like this, a regular standard movie theater size versus IMAX size and different things like that, there's different dimensions and so things will not mm -hmm. look correct if you just do one size so they actually were the ones that created uh the the base effects they did in imax and they were the ones that actually kind of were in charge of redoing the vfx into a letterbox version based on the vfx for the imax so that you know, regular standard movie theater screens uh, could show the film. And, and I, I just mm -hmm. like, it was one of those things that's like, I didn't even think about that as being an issue. But yeah, I guess if you're doing all sorts of backgrounds, you're doing all sorts of like terrain and stuff that you, the, 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 the characters are going through, it's, there's different size screens and they've got to look different in those screens. That would be weird. So not just chopping it off or, or whatever. They're actually redoing the... Yeah. It all gets to be more work than you'd think would be physically possible. But that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah. I, I thought for the most part the VFX in this looked pretty cool and looked good. There, I didn't have a lot of complaints. I mean, I think some of it is that like the things we're talking about is... A, a lab growing bigger and smaller and we've got hot wheels mm -hmm. that are growing bigger and smaller and stuff and there's a level of ridiculousness i think that comes with that that you just sort of like okay yeah but then like there was some practical stuff too that they did like when scott is really small they were showing some behind the scenes filming of that and they actually created like giant steps outside the school that he had to run, you know, kind of climb down in order to actually create that effect of him being, you know, two feet tall in a, a, you know, walking down some stairs and then like 
going into the into the into the van and stuff he's in a giant giant you know like seat like he's lamb lamb chop or something and and ends up you know that's how they get that to then end up looking correctly in, in the final shots that makes sense huh very cool so a little bit of practical effect in with the the stuff too yeah they talked about the fact that that like this is a real world this is a practical world and so a lot of the things that they had that they needed to do they had to kind of base it on practical stuff and so there there had to be some practical things that we're building and it and it's interesting because like one of the it the coolest things is the lab and that quantum tunnel set is actually an entire physical set they said you can't build anything like that completely out of cgi it's just not going to look right it's got to look right and so that is according to them it is the largest physical set that has been built for an mc movie at least up until this point and it's you know it's a thing that's supposed to be able to you know shrink down into the you know the size of a briefcase basically but it is they said it's a little counterintuitive but that is the biggest physical set because it needed to look real and so the Mm -hmm. only way they could do that is by creating a practical set for them to 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 be on very cool i mean that's again anytime you want something to really look good it seems to be still better to just build it and with the kind of money they have and the skill they have that makes perfect sense to me yeah two other interesting notes that i wanted to bring up about the the vfx before we move on one is uh lola vfx were were the ones that were responsible for the youngification of michelle pfeiffer michael douglas and actually lawrence fishburne we saw an older lawrence fishburne uh, Bill Foster, and it, and what's interesting is Langston Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne's son, was actually the one that was in that you know doing that mm-hmm. role, and then they kind of used him and then really? modified him slightly in order to actually be the the younger Bill Foster. So I, I thought I thought that was kind of cool. I I guess they probably could have done with most. I I don't know how that particular uh effects sort of works but i guess it makes sense that if you have a younger version of lawrence fishburne and the best place to start would be his son and then uh kind of go from there that is very cool yeah that and you'd think if you can do it that would save you a ton of money because the de-aging stuff cannot be cheap it's much easier to hire an actor who not only looks like him, but then Fishburne's probably not going to complain because kind of cool to get to work with his son and have him on set and stuff like that for a while. So, yeah. yeah. Is he an actor normally or is he just, it's like, I, you know, I, he, I don't, he's got I his don't job know. as an accountant someplace and he just came on the set for a couple of days because he looks like dad or. I don't know if, if he's an actual actor in his own right i i can't say that i've seen him in anything else so no i don't i don't know that he actually is i think it was just an opportunity to have him come on the set and be almost like an extra but actually in 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 a scene and stuff that's awesome 
that is awesome the other quick note is we talked about practical effects versus vfx the wasp suit that evangeline lovely wore during this filming included practical wings that were then replaced by digital wings when they are expanded and for ready for for flying so again it gets back to we want to make things look real and the best way to make them look real is making a practical thing to start with and and then using vfx to hmm. augment that pretty cool so so overall what did you think of this as being the follow-up to infinity war because as as we noted early on this is a complete tonal change from what we got in there and we're like still on this cliffhanger of what's going to happen because we assume that that story's not over and i think that's what makes it so great is that they knew they were going to have a year or more between the two infinity war movies the two thanos movies so because of that you kind of are taking your entire universe and putting it on this downer for about a year until you can fix things, right? Everybody's dead, and it's just kind of depressing. So having a show come in that's a little bit time-displaced, that lets you kind of give your fans a chance to have something that's a little bit more just entertaining, mm -hmm. I think it worked really well for me then, and it still works well for me now. It definitely is something where when it comes down to playing something for scientific accuracy or comedy, they play it for comedy. Sure. If playing it for almost anything, they choose to make it kind of funny and entertaining. And I think that all works. I had no real sense of danger at any point for any of our heroes. I didn't really think there were any times that were particularly suspenseful. Probably the most tense scene in the entire thing is the one that ends up being diffused with a, a video call and an Altoids can full of ants, right? Yes, yes, so, the, the, like, duck noises and stuff when, yep. when uh, Cassie is calling. monologuing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So there's really not a lot that was, that was particularly tense in it. A lot of character development and tension, but that tension is between, like, Hope and Scott and the fact that she's still really angry and yet we kind of know that they're going to be getting back together from the way everything's going. It's got that sort of almost like 1940s romantic comedy sort yeah, of thing. It is. You've got these two definitely. people who are fighting, but there's, there's still definitely, you know, they're going to end up by the end of the movie being together. You just kind of know it. Uh, I think best of all, what the movie gave us is exactly what the title promises. Because it says this is going to be Ant-Man, just like the last Ant-Man, only now there's going to be a lot of Wasp. And so that's going to make it better because that's going to be cool. And it ends yeah. up being, you know, the the base idea, only they modify it by turning the focus on to hope. So in a lot of ways, you know, Ant-Man becomes a slightly secondary character in this one. We get to see a different character do a lot of the stuff. You've still got your Louise. You've still got a lot of the stuff that we enjoyed. Yeah, I, I think... It's, it's nice to go to the theater and just get a movie that gives you kind of the ability to to get what you wanted, which was which was another fun Ant-Man movie. Yeah, I I actually I found myself like enjoying it more 
rewatching it now than I expected to. I, I, I think given like the serious nature of what happened immediately before this, it, it, this felt like a really great palate cleanser. Like, did I just see what I just saw? Maybe this, maybe things aren't as bad. We have this nice fun adventure and there's some really weird things that are going on. And like, you know, we have a giant Pez dispenser during the car chase. We have, you know, we have a, we have a, uh, you know, go the ghost character who is, who is sympathetic. I mean, I understand why she's, you know, she's going to die if she doesn't get help and, and Bill Foster's trying to help her. And so there's like this kind of artificial sort of tension there just because they're kind of competing for, for what they're mm-hmm. trying to do. But yeah, it's, it's just sort of, ah, okay. This, this is okay. And, and the other thing is I found myself not trying to think too hard about what was actually going on because what did you think of like, just in talking about the things that happened here, some of these plot points are eh, a little on the suspect side. It makes almost no sense. But I will note one other thing that, you know, the, the plot makes enough sense in a sort of Hitchcock MacGuffin kind of way that you're like, okay, here's the thing that's got to happen and now that's driving the plot and so fine, I accept yeah. that, right? They need this piece to be able to do the thing they need to do. What I think I liked about it is that as I've been watching some of the other MCU movies from around this time and later over again, the sort of wink and a nod, self-referential, almost absurdist humor that they do, I don't know how well that wears on second, third, fourth watching sometimes. This is really sort of classic comedy that's based on interpersonal relationships and just sort of, you know, people actually doing things that are entertaining and the like. And it feels a lot cleaner in terms of you don't have as much baggage attached to it. You can just enjoy it. And so it it's... This is, I think, the sort of movie that... Look, again, you know, like we said, it's not, it's not a top 100 all-time film or something. You know, one of those movies that's going to go down in history... But it is a solid action comedy that's the sort of movie you can always put in and probably enjoy. Yeah. I I think of like the whole thing when Janet takes over Scott's body in the lab and stuff. I'm like, I think I've seen that like a dozen times in various sitcoms and stuff. And it's just and, and like it's also something I don't think I've seen very recently so it just sort of like kind of made me chuckle and like it was it it was like it felt good it like it was one of those things where it's like oh this is this is cute and and i and i liked that there are a number of things in this that probably have a sitcomish almost element like yeah you know the sort of thing you'd see on on a tv sitcom type of thing but i i was okay with it I think that it disarms you early on by showing you that it's not taking itself too seriously and then you're invited to not take it too seriously while still having something that, you know, it's really well acted, the effects are good, the plot moves along at a pace, 
the plot elements themselves for the most part make sense and are satisfying it's just the details of them you don't want to think about too much yeah yeah you know i think we've had that with some some comic books as well it's like don't Mm -hmm. try and overanalyze what's going on here because you'll just start creating tons and tons of questions that you will not get answers to yeah absolutely All right, so one other thing, by the way, that I did wonder about is, are there too many villains in this? Are there any real villains in this? We've got a number of antagonists, right? You've got Ghost and Bill Foster, who are kind of one angle, one vector of villainy for them, right? You've got Ghost, who's trying to save herself by getting this energy from the quantum realm potentially while just killing whoever she has to to do it which is pretty suspect you've got sonny birch and his goons who have some mysterious buyers that they're trying to work for so they're trying to constantly cause trouble and the like uh-huh. and as as real antagonists go they're pretty low level i mean these guys are these guys are not a serious threat when it comes no. down to it no, they, can, not really. they can barely defeat Luis for heaven's sakes <laughs> Let alone take out superheroes. And then you've got Jimmy Woo and the feds who are just sort of there, almost like this weird little check on them where, oh, I'm going to come and i got to be able to find you at any moment. And like three times he has to rush back to the house because Jimmy's coming to check on him to see if he's there. Uh-huh. So, And he, he also isn't really an antagonist. He's just no. literally doing his job. He, that's, he's that's, like... He's like a school teacher Not, while the kids yeah. are trying to to play hooky, basically. Yeah. This is uh, so so really. I mean, you don't have any villains in this. You have you have a a young woman put in bad situation and the like. You have these guys who are only and and all of this are problems of their own creation, right? Mm-hmm. Because. Scott, Janet, and Hank have caused all these problems. Jimmy Woo is only bothering them because Scott Pym or Scott Lang broke massive federal laws and invaded Germany, right? Which American citizens are not supposed to do. Sonny Birch is only involved because the Pyms actually hired him to get this part for them, essentially, right? And then he found out the identity and the like. And Ghost is only here because him and all his weird dangerous research sort of got you know some guy to try some things he shouldn't have and his family and himself got hurt because of it so everybody who's a bad guy in this quote unquote is actually the fault of our protagonists (laughs) yes yes no you're absolutely correct it's like you you're creating the you literally are creating the mess that you've that you've started here and now Surprise, surprise, not all of them have the same, uh, you know, objectives yeah. that you have. So suddenly now they're, you know, trying to to undo or, or stop you from doing the thing that you actually want to do. But I mean, even Bill Foster, has has there ever been a more milk toast bad guy? He literally <laughs> has somebody captured and lets his daughter do a FaceTime because he gets, you know, oh, well, if your daughter is having... An emergency. A 911 yeah, emergency, you, yeah. You do, you, better... you do have to talk to her, obviously, right? Dr. Doom would not let you take that call. <laughs> yes. So, and then, and then later on, 
I mean, he's he's basically a college professor who's out of this business entirely and the like. And right. just the only reason he's a bad guy is because Hank Pym has been such a terrible co-worker and friend over the years that he doesn't trust him to talk to him. So he goes off and tries to solve it himself instead of sharing it with Pym. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's too many, like, uh, you know, antagonists in the in this. Like, they all seem to sort of serve a purpose, and it, and it feels like any one of them just kind of on their own isn't enough of a speed bump to kind of keep the, 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 the trio of Hank and Hope and Scott from doing whatever it was they needed. So it's like, let's put all these things in there. Let's let's put as many speed bumps as we can into this process as we possibly can. And I think you know, slapstick enough, it'll it'll work. That is perfectly put. Speed bumps is really what they are for the most part. Yeah. None of them are actually going to stop somebody with the sort of technology that the Pims and Lang have, or you know, they're what they're trying to do. But they will just continually get in the way and provide for entertainment and distractions so yeah so so that's the thing there is no actual bad guy that is is an actual villain that you can really turn to who really catches a person right on the other hand there are some spectacular supporting characters who totally steal the show so i believe that both Jimmy and Luis are, in many ways, some of the best parts of the scenes they're in. Obviously, Jimmy we only see for a few scenes here and there, but he's always entertaining. To like, you know, how do you do that on the card tricks and the like, and showing up and visiting with the daughter and all that. So that's entertaining. And then Luis, I believe, is probably the most entertaining part of this movie when he's in the movie. Uh, when he's talking to Janet in the van or when he's doing his his recap of the whole relationship between uh, Scott and Hope yeah. when he's under the, the truth serum. What? I need to know where Scott Lang is and he's like tells him yeah. how he is emotionally. I loved, I yeah. absolutely loved that. That is like, what are you talking about? Yes. There'd be no one more frustrating to get actual true, like, succinct information out of but but so that was supporting characters are always important and in something like a sitcom or you know a comedy like a a slapstick kind of 1940s comedy you always had to have these characters that were just great character actors and they've got them and that i think really helps to build the story yeah i think you you almost you as an extension of these main characters that we see in the in these films, I think you really like those supporting characters as well. And so you're kind of rooting for all of them to sort of do what they need to do in order to, to be successful in that. And and so the, there's no reason you should really care about Luis, but yet he is so fantastically well done that uh, that you just you're just like, yeah. He's doing the thing again where he talks a mile a minute and you hear his voice in every character. And I absolutely love that. And also, Luis gets one of the most iconic moments, I think, for anybody who ever had Hot Wheels cars when they were a kid. And I had like the Hot Wheels 
case, the one that looks like a tire, that that idea that when you were a kid, you'd actually imagine you could drive all of your little hot wheels and he could, you know, opens it up. Uh-huh. He's like, looks in and he's like, I love you, Mr. Pym. <laughs> Grab out <laughs> yes. the little sports car and soon he's driving it. It's like, yeah. Yep. It's what every six-year-old boy in America wants to just be able to have the ability to make all those cars big and drive them around. So, absolutely loved that. Principal photography for this movie began August 1st, 2017. You remember it ended up coming out just uh, 11 months later, July 4th, 2018. Uh, They started in Pinewood, Atlanta Studios in Fayette County, Georgia. The working title of the film, Cherry Blue. And I have little to no idea where that came from exactly. It's weird. Um, Paul Rudd does magic in this film with cards and stuff. He actually did learn some close-up magic for this film. He he said in an interview post-release uh, of the film that he did, in fact, learn some, some close-up magic. He didn't keep... I don't think it's something he keeps up on. He said he hadn't kept up on it after, after filming it wrapped. So I don't know if you could ask him to do a card trick now he'd be able to do it. But he did actually learn some, some magic in order to do uh, some of that stuff. They were actually talking uh, about not doing a Luis story scene in this film because they didn't want to repeat themselves. But they thought the idea of pitting him in uh, this Walter Groggins, Sonny Birch kind of interrogation with truth serum was a way that they could do this scene and have it feel different enough that they could still do the scene. And I think both you and I really enjoyed that mm-hmm. part of the film. So I'm glad they were able to do that. No. And finally, one other thing I thought was interesting, the alien looking organisms in the microscopic realm in the, uh, you know, on the way to the quantum realm, when he kind of gets stopped and they're mm-hmm. recalibrating, recalibrating. Are... Tardigrades. Yeah. What? Tardigrades. You knew what those were. Yeah. I did not know what they're those awesome. were. They're, they're called they're water bears <laughs> or tardigrades, which can be found in the most extreme environments on Earth, including hot springs, glaciers, mm-hmm. the top of the Himalayas, and deep sea trenches. They can go dormant for mm-hmm. without food and water for decades and survive incredible temperatures, pressures, radiation, toxicity, and even several days in space. You knew what those were, huh? Sci-fi loves tardigrades. Tardigrades are the best. Plus, they look so weird. They just—they just are absolutely amazing. Like with their their crazy mouth and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Those, the, the, those were really weird. I did not know what those were. Now you know what those were as well. Those are not actually quantum realm inhabitants. Those are those are real microorganisms that are on the on on this earth. From the comics, I wanted to reference a couple suits. The metal suit that Hank wears when meeting Janet in the Quantum Realm resembles his comic counterpart Goliath's costume, right down to the Y-shaped symbol on his chest. And the ghost costume is based on the character's 
modern design from the Thunderbolts and still incorporates the hood that was part of the original outfit from back in the 80s. And one, one thing I should note mm-hmm. is uh, Ghost, the Ava character, or Ghost, does not die in this film. So we're, there's been talk of a Thunderbolts movie at some point, potentially, and um, there we, we could maybe see this character again at some point. It would be, it would be interesting to see. Yep, and there's a, it's a very different character from the one in the comics, obviously. So we didn't really talk about that to read any of the comics, partly because they were different enough that uh, Ghost is more like a ghost rather than someone quantum entangled in the comics. Mm. Just sort of becomes intangible and invisible and stuff. And it's a guy and an Iron Man villain and whatever else. And so completely different character. So really it's better to just think of this ghost as a as an entirely new creation with the same yeah. name rather than trying to link them together although the the costume does have similarities which is uh which is i guess about the the only place you really see it <laughs> the extent of the similarities end with the costume that is what you're and, saying. and the, it's yeah it's not exact but there's a lot so yeah all right there we go so all right, sir. We've read some comics. We watched a movie. It is time for the face-off. So, if you uh, if you had to pick between the two, we're gonna we're gonna go with uh, I think actually the Wasp one through four, which I guess because this is a you've you've discussed this as being a Wasp-centered movie, so we'll yes. go with the Wasp-centered comics. Uh, Wasp one through four from twenty twenty-three or Ant Man and the Wasp from twenty eighteen. Which one did you like more? I mean, I think I like the movie more and it's, it's the, I think the Wasp comic is actually great. I am really kind of interested in seeing where that character goes, uh, you know, see where the next story leads after, uh, after that, uh, that, that short run of books. But I just, I think, I think I wanted a fun movie that sort of, brings back Ant-Man from the first film or the Ant-Man character that I know and really adds somebody that's as good or better than Ant-Man in the Wasp. And I think they did that. And in fact, they made a much better version in the Wasp. And I, and I, I love the fact that they took, you know, a character that I think is actually a really important character from the comics Janet Van Dyne as the Wasp in the comics, I think, is a really important character. And I think they did a really good job of making her feel like an important character in this universe, in the MCU. I think, you know, we see how capable she is as as a hero. And, And I want to see more of the Wasp going forward. And, you know, the the movie was ridiculous. It was fun. It was over in a flash. It was much different than the things that we had been seeing leading up to it. And until that gut punch in the end, I had I had a smile on my face for most of this film. And then, uh, you know, the mid credit scene rolls. We see the Pims all kind of disintegrate because of the snap. And you're like, oh, yeah, we live in this world again. That's right. Oh, 
this doesn't feel so good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is probably the most enjoyable rewatch. The one that I most unexpectedly really enjoyed. I wasn't yeah. sure. I, I didn't... I think that's the other thing is it's not probably the most memorable movie of the MCU. Right. Right. But it's, but it's fun. So... Um, five years from now, I can go in and I'll probably have forgotten most of it and I'll enjoy it again. So such is the way. But uh, I, I would say also, yeah, this this was a really well-made movie that did what it wanted, set out to do and did it well. I liked the comic books, but there was a lot more, um, there was a lot more interesting stuff as far as the dialogue and some of the development and like it just covered more territory. So I enjoyed both of them. But I will also take the movie on this one. So, 2 and 0. For All right. Read. Is there some correspondence this week, Dan? Yeah, we uh, we had Steph checking in this week. And she was uh, she was wondering about your... your uh, when we were talking about Luis at the end of last show, you, you were talking about how we were we were stands of Luis. And, yes. Uh, how, how, you, <laughs> how you came to be so young and hip and cool that you would be... Uh, <laughs> knowing the lingo yeah i i will tell you that it felt right when i said it and then i immediately regretted saying it after i said it uh for those of you who may have been caught off guard a stan is an extremely or excessively uh enthusiastic or devoted fan it's kind of a mashup of the word stalker and fan that's how you get stan and um but some somehow that felt like the right word for talking about luis i really like that character from the first film he's spectacular again in this film uh michael pena can be uh luis in a movie anytime and i will i will try and watch that absolutely excellent so thank you steph for uh keeping uh Keep keeping us uh, keeping us humble here as we move through the uh, move through the movies. Now that we are finished with this one, we have one more movie to go before we return to the world of Thanos and his uh, his destruction, and that is Captain Marvel. So, in preparation for the Captain Marvel movie, I'm going to have you read four comics that will give you very quick looks at where Carol Danvers is in the Marvel Universe in 1968, in 1977, in like the 1980s. And then we're going to read Captain Marvel number one through six from 2012. Along the way, I'm going to have to have you read at least one comic, which is considered to be one of the biggest travesties in the history of the Marvel Universe. So I'm going to be interested to see if you notice it's a little confusing, but I'm going to see if, uh, what, what you think of Avengers 200. So we're reading Marvel superheroes number 13, which is the first appearance of Carol Danvers. doesn't have powers or anything, but it is her first appearance. She comes in as essentially a supporting character in the book featuring another Captain Marvel. Then we've got Ms. Marvel number one which is where she first kind of gets her powers as Ms. Marvel and comes in as a superhero in her own right. 
We're going to read Uncanny X-Men number 164, where one of the X-Men, Rogue, does something particularly noxious to her brain. We're going to do Avengers number 200, which is a comic book so inappropriate that it actually was retconned by later, um, later writers to try and make it less awful. Oh, and then we're going to read Captain Marvel number tw- uh, number one through six, where we finally get sort of that perfect pairing of writer and artist and Captain Marvel kind of in a form that you would really recognize her from the MCU comes into being. Hmm. All right. That so, sounds like quite the list of books that that we've got in the stack this week. I'm going to be interested in diving into these and getting yeah, through them. What, what, I went with a few less books because they're not single storylines so much. So it's five storylines, but only 10 total books. So hopefully it will uh, be something that you can get through and that we can have time to talk about. All right. That sounds good. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for this. And with that, that is going to wrap it up. For us for this week, we'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the show or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Maybe you watched Ant-Man and the Wasp this week and want to share your thoughts. You can send those to us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com or you can reach out to us via social media. We are on Twitter or X at comics over time. We're on blue sky. Both Dan and I posted this week. Cause I, he, he remembered and I didn't notice that he had remembered. So I posted as well. Uh, so yeah, we've got blue sky covered there at comics over time there. So if that's where you are on social media, now you will get updates from us when new episodes go live there. Dan. And if comics, is, oh, I was going to say, and if comics is kind of your thing, Blue Sky has become a really nice place to be because it is sort of where a lot of um, the artists that I'm most interested in following have fled. They're largely leaving Twitter now is when they can, and we're seeing that more and more. Also, there's rumors now that Twitter will start charging just yeah. for people to be on, uh, or you may have to scan in your id to be able to keep your account active or something like this uh so whatever harebrained thing thing elon musk has come up with now yeah Yeah. so it it seems that uh if you're not already looking around for lifeboats to get off of the twitter ship it might be a good time to to at least be ready to have a second plan and blue sky for all of its sort of remaining needs in terms of getting additional functionality is right now the best option i've found for a place to post and kind of keep up with what's going on in comics the app actually allows for you to be to switch between multiple accounts now so i'm able to just actually log in with my my mobile app and be able to just easily switch from my my personal account and the show account so that's how i was able to post this week so hey they're adding new features all the time so that's great I have not gotten that set up. I didn't know they could do that. All right. I'm going to have to go do that. Yes. So, Dan, this week was actually, like you said, a much more enjoyable rewatch of a movie that uh, than I expected. I knew nothing about Captain Marvel going into the movie. 
I'm excited to rewatch that in a couple weeks, but I, I'm very interested in seeing some of Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel in the comics to get kind of that context first. Yeah, you say that now. Wait till you read some of these comics. So <laughs> There we go. I do say that now. I might not be saying that next week. The beautiful thing is it's worth it because the last six are fantastic. So there you go. All right. I am going to hold you to that. You all do the same. And until next week, everyone, take care. See you later, folks. <laughs>